Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi Geekscapists, welcome to a brand new Geekscape podcast. I'm Jonathan London, filmmaker, podcaster, and the host of this very Geekscape podcast running on 16, 17 years. Who can tell anymore? We just recovered from San Diego Comic-Con 2023, and so this is a special podcast, the final of our San Diego Comic-Con coverage for the year, and it is the art of the adaptation panel that I had Um it was awesome, and this was one of the many reasons to go to San Diego Comic-Con 2023 and one of the highlights that I was looking forward to. Uh, it features some real great Hollywood screenwriters, and um, the panel is about adaptation. This is an idea that Garrett Briones first presented at LA Comic-Con and, and did, and, and I asked Garrett, I said, hey, uh, Burke Sharpless, and uh, he want, he's the co-writer of Morbius, Madam Web, what's upcoming, um, Lost in Space for Netflix, tons of stuff, and he wanted to do a uh, panel at San Diego Comic-Con this year, and I said, hey, why don't we just do a version of Garrett's panel, The Art of the Adaptation, so with Garrett's blessing, uh, we put a panel together with he, his co-writer Matt Sazama, Chris Black, who's just a heavyweight, uh, you'll hear his his uh, credits on the panel, and he's amazing. And Stephanie K. Smith, who has a maybe more than anybody on the panel, a ton of uh, experience adapting material to books, from comics to film to TV. Uh, it was awesome. Even though the writer's strike is still going strong and we couldn't talk about any of the future projects that the panelists have going on, we still had a pretty amazing panel. We talked about career reinvention, where do you get your gigs? The approach to adapting material that wasn't originally yours. There's lots to unpack in this episode, so I really hope you enjoy it. We had a blast at San Diego Comic-Con, and enjoy. How are you doing? That's a, that's a little bit louder than I expected. Hi, I'm Jonathan London from Geekscape. Welcome to a panel I like to call the art of the adaptation. We're talking about adapting my favorite medium, comic books, to TV and film, but also just any medium that is uh, maybe just printed before it becomes live action in TV or film. Uh, and I've put together an amazing panel uh, I don't know if anybody's heard the Geekscape podcast. Some of these folks are former Geekscape guests. Uh, over the last 16, 17 years of doing Geekscape as a podcast, I've talked to some amazing people. I'm so happy to include these four as members of that group. Um, let me introduce them to you. I want to say, first off, yeah, we're in a writer's strike right now. So uh, we may dance around a couple of the topics, uh, at least the subjects of what we're talking about, uh, in order to not promote future releases or uh, break some of the WGA uh, agreements for the strike. So there will be questions. Uh, if any of the uh, panelists want to sidestep an answer or work around it, um, be patient with them. Uh, you may not be getting the answer that you wanted just because of the restrictions of the strike 
and be working in solidarity with the writers and now the actors. So things are going well. Uh, hopefully, yeah, I think things are going to go well. Hopefully, I'm not going to wood. All right, let me introduce our panelists. Um, first up, we have our friend Burke Sharpless. He's part of a writing team uh, with Matt Tazima, who's following him up on stage. Burke and Matt have done a lot of genre work. Uh, one of the most, I, I think one of the best shows on Netflix was the recent adaptation of Lost in Space. They were responsible for that. And we're not going to shy away from it, they were also responsible for writing Morbius. Yeah. That's right. Or at least writing it until they hand it to the studio. But we're not going <laughs> to violate the strike rules and knock the studio here. We just, hey, solid air with the writers. Uh, next up, somebody who has written a ton of uh, adaptations, a lot of book adaptations, taking things like film, TV, or other properties and putting, putting them out like the novelization of it. She's worked on shows like Carnival Row. You guys have seen that one? Uh, genius. And she wrote the novelization for Carnival Row, which a lot of people really think is like the best version of Carnival Row. But no offense, like I'm friends with Travis Beecham, so who created Carnival Row, so I don't want to say like I, she's just amazing is what I'm trying to tell you. All right, Travis, she's amazing. Stephanie K. Smith. I haven't read the novelization. I love Carnival Row, just the way you gave it to us, Travis. Okay. Um, next up, last but not least, definitely not least, uh, because I love love Outcast. The show that was born out of the Skybound Robert Kirkman book, uh, it had Patrick Fugin in it, and having them on Geekscape to talk about it is how I met Mr. Chris Black. He's gone on to work on Severance, which is an incredible show. Uh, let's get up here, Chris. And that's really what I wrote down, because we're just going to kind of spitball talking about adaptation. Um, guys, I think the best thing to do is lay the groundwork for how you began as writers. Uh, did you intend to get into screenwriting? And let's start with Burke, because last night we were at dinner, and you said that you fell into screenwriting because you wanted to start writing comics. It's true. I, uh, I graduated uh, college with an art degree and you know, thought of myself as an artist writer and, and a painter and moved to New York and was a bohemian. And um, I'm like one of the few people who got into screenwriting because it was like the more responsible choice. Mm -hmm. It was like, oh, I got to really settle down to something realistic. So I moved to Los Angeles, uh, I think when I around, was around 30 and probably would still be bartending except I met him. And he was like this, you know, very experienced, very intense, like guy who'd written like six incredible scripts and uh none of which had been sold by the way <laughs> that's that's how amazing they were and uh, he was like the nyu you know um uh, graduate and we we were actually we met each other and we're both from wisconsin but we didn't know each other in wisconsin so when we met each other we became friends because we're both from wisconsin and uh, then ultimately started working together too and matt you come in you got this experience you went to nyu you're focused on the screenplay stuff. You come in and you meet this guy who's hey, thinking about writing a screenplay. <laughs> <laughs> how did how did this Why? become the thing that how, how did how did this relationship <laughs> these two disparate parts that were kind of entering the unknown to get like in their own way? How did getting together become the thing that broke you guys to where you finally had a movie get made? So when people ask me what's the best movie that describes the writing experience, I always tell them it's The Shining. <laughs> so, if not for my writing partner, things would have gone very poorly in my life. Uh, uh, I wasn't necessarily looking for a writing partner, but uh, the two of us were having coffee one day and had the idea, we both love spaghetti westerns, and I uh, had that idea to write one together, thought it was a good idea, I wrote it, it turned out pretty good. We've been trying to get it made for 20 years. Uh, and we just kept writing together, uh, culminating with uh, our big spec strip that, that sort of broke us into the industry was a script called Dracula Year Zero, which became the film Dracula Untold. And that, now you're impressed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and we've had careers ever since. And it was, uh, but it, it, we worked with this, this great manager named uh, Matt Weinberg, 
Uh, and the only reason we had met him is because Burke was a bartender at the Chateau Marmont, where he gets to meet everyone and met uh, Matt's partner, Matt Weinberg's partner. So, so my contribution to the writing partnership was bartending. <laughs> we, we all have our roles to play. Maybe Wait, very Matt, good mojitos. I love that like, he was fully prepared to become a bohemian. You were the straight and narrow from NYU focused on your film career, and you relied on the connections made from the bohemian bartender to yeah. get in the door, to that's get everything right. made. Like, that's crazy. Yeah. You were so focused on the goal, and it came out of the side and got you there. You never know what your path is going to be. Yeah. It's, all, it's, it's never what you expect. One might expect going to anybody from school to provide that for me. <laughs> it only but, provided the debt. Yes. <laughs> uh, Stephanie, you went to USC. And you wrote, you undergrad, USC grad. But you were started writing there for screenwriting, and you had a script that took you out of USC and got attention. Yeah, I... Not? I got hired to write a sequel to Flight of the Navigator while I was still at USC. But but then my career tanked. So it was, <laughs> it was like, you know, you thought you made But it, you were stoked as a student oh to God, be like, I'm writing a sequel to and Flight of the yes, Navigator. In that same like crazy Hollywood vein, I met the producer who hired me to write it, Spinning at Crunch Fitness, which in like the early aughts was like where you went to the gym. And yeah, there was this older gentleman who I thought was trying to pick me up on the spin bike. And he was like, let me read your thesis and I'll call you in like two months. And then he called me in two hours and was like, you're doing the right thing for a living. And my partner produced this movie and we have the rights with Disney. And would you like to write it? And so it was, was Play like, of the Navigator. Yeah. How much Beach Boys did you listen to while writing? Like, None, because I wrote a whole, I had a whole new soundtrack and there was a lot of U2. Yeah. <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> We but yeah, they never wanted, made it. Who wants to see that Flight of the Navigator sequel? <laughs> well, yeah. It was, I mean, it was, except that it was so pre, um, pre-PC pre green. You know, we're talking early 2000s. It was called uh, SUV, Supreme Universal Vehicle. <laughs> we'll workshop that. All right? We'll, <laughs> we'll workshop it. Yep. And you say your career tanked. Uh, yeah, I've had a bunch of incarnations of, you know, thinking that I was going to be successful and then it went up and down. So I had that run. Then I had, um, and, and I went to, like I said, NYU, then USC, was still at USC when that all happened. Thought that, that was a little bit of a run, you know, off of that, because the script was repped, you know, I got hip-pocketed at, you know, what was William Morris at the time. And, um, and then, you know, had a few meetings, did a few things, nothing kind of happened. Then I don't know if you recall in like the mid 2000s, um, Al Gore was putting together a network. I worked for Current. Yeah, I was. I worked the, for I was TV. one of the people that they picked for their best young digital storytellers. Wow. <laughs> before they then canned that program. Yeah, I was there for three months before I said, you know what? I don't. <laughs> Al Gore had a network called Current. It was based on citizen journalism where you take videos. And you upload it for them to put on an MTV-like channel, but it's all about social activism. And I got a, two months into this, and I looked up and I said, people are just going to put this on their own channels, as they did. Well, the, and this is the thing around that whole era, and that was the next thing that I did, was I created a television show that existed on multiple platforms, and this was 2007. And it was supposed to roll out as if the person was real, around the same time as Lonely Girl, but before sure. Lonely Girl had happened. And a series of events made her inadvertently famous online and then led to a sort of um, faux uh, Kardashians-esque reality comedy that I saw as being like kind of girls before girls. And I sold that. And that's what kind of got my career going that next time I started selling shows. That was CW. And then I had a run of selling shows there and then tanked again. <laughs> but, but I think that it's a process of reinvention several times. Yeah. And as we get into adaptation, we'll talk about that process of reinvention because... A lot of the IP that is out there in comics form or written form novelizations are these things like Flight of the Navigator that when they're sitting there in a vault somewhere and someone is like, how can we squeeze some money out of stuff that we already own? They're looking for that level of reinvention. And I think that anybody listening to this panel thinking about a film career is making those, asking those questions about reinvention in their own lives. And what is that thing that I need to change in what I'm doing now? You need to go to spin class. From what Stephanie told us, well, no. <laughs> uh, that that will that will unlock lock that thing. Michael Goy, who shot Lonely Girl, fifteen, uh, mm -hmm, yeah, like he now shoots all of Ryan Murphy's stuff. Yeah, like Michael's a friend. We went through the Warner Brothers program together, and as I'm going through the program, I'm like, why does this guy need this? He's literally shooting some major television for Ryan Murphy. He is his DP of choice, 
and he now is on. He's like the executive producer, like guy on the rookie show, one of the rookie shows. Listen, it is all about reinvention, and like to that end, I mean, like everybody was kind of behind the the ball on on media in, in that era. But sure. basically, what happened to me was I had gotten pigeonholed. Can we hear Stephanie? I'm sorry. You're, uh, oh, sorry. No problem. Had, no problem. I, your your husband does the same thing on the Geekscape podcast all the time. <laughs> I leans hey, back instead of talking. Um, <laughs> but I um, I lost my train of thought now. Reinvention. Oh, yeah. So I had gotten pigeonholed into writing these sort of like CWS kind of shows, and everybody thought, oh, because you're a young woman, you have to write young women. And I mean, that was really the way it was 15 years ago. Like, forget about it if the characters weren't likable, or, you know, I could, I could get into the whole specifics of that. But what I really wanted to be writing was sort of like prestige drama, and I had an interest in light fantasy, sort of like a six feet under lost kind of place. So I wrote a script in about 10 years ago now, and that sort of relaunched me, and I've been consistently employed since, but it was a complete reinvention from what was there before. So you have to always be willing to reinvent. And Chris. Um, yeah, Chris. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to ask you about this reinvention because you, we met when you were promoting Outcast, mm -hmm. which is the Skybound show, and Skybound, of course, got popular with The Walking Dead. Right. And suddenly they're looking at Robert Kirkman's work and saying, okay, what else does Robert have? Well, I think, I mean, I don't have a long history of Skybound. Sure. Helen might know better than I do. It was like, it became wildly successful with The Walking Dead in television, but they had been publishing and producing comics long before that, right? Not really? Okay. And for those of you listening, I think they are playing the Barbie Oppenheimer double screening next door oh. because it is so loud. <laughs> at, at the same time. It's a little bit of dance rhythm, but every now and then we'll hear something <laughs> like get destroyed. <laughs> I'm like, they're just playing both movies at the same time from what I can tell through the wall. So apologies to anybody listening to this. That's crazy. Uh, continue, Chris. I'm sorry. I was a little distracted. Oh, no. I was wrong. So it's yeah. like, go, so go on. Yeah. <laughs> and, what, um, and so was that your first adaptation was Outcast, looking at the Kirkman Azateca book and well, in a, in a weird way, no. The, the very first writing job that I ever had was the USA cable television version of Weird Science. Um, so I guess technically that was an adaptation because yes. it was based on the John Hughes movie. So. Sure. And then you, uh, I mean, Severance is awesome. I know it's not an adaptation, but we just all have to say Severance is awesome. If you haven't seen it, you should watch it. Uh, your next project is an also an expansion of a universe that is out there. We won't talk about it because of the strike rules. Um, but as you think about these properties, these IPs that are out there, much of them were put in print, in comics, or written in order to be put in the marketplace and establish the IP in a cheap way, in a way that's not taking on the budget of explosions and live action. So I think a lot of us got our in our entry into hired work with adaptations. I guess, well, yes. I mean, obviously, it, it's, it's funny because I, nothing I look at in the career I've had to date was necessarily about reinvention. And then, it, and then none of it was by design. It yeah. was like... It, you you know, took the job. You took the job, yes. you know. And as you get older, and I think I'm the oldest person at this table, you know, you're allowed... Um, to be slightly more selective in the things that you're interested in doing. Um, but like the weird science job, I had come, I went to USC film school undergrad. In We're the, not selective at all. In the, <laughs> you know, in the, not even remotely. In the, in the 80s and was trying to, um, and I went there basically because that was where George Lucas went. I sure. was like, oh, that's the place you go. Uh, and I think the only reason I was able to get in was because I didn't realize how difficult it was. Um, <laughs> Uh, so I blundered into that, moved to LA, and then it was the I graduated in the middle of, uh, in the mid '80s at the sort of height of the spec feature market, you know. And it was like Scott Alexander and Larry Kirazuski were classmates of mine. They had sold this movie called Problem Child for a million dollars. It was like the era of Shane Black, you know, and highest selling like the highest costing spec of all time. Well, and Joe Esterhaus had sold Basic Instinct, mm -hmm. I think, for like $3 million or something. But these wow. were original stories. Yeah. And so, but I thought, coming out of film school, oh, that's the gravy train. You know, that it's like, I'm just going to write a, a blockbuster feature and sell it for a million dollars. And wrote a bunch of unsold and unsaleable bad Shane Black knockoff scripts <laughs> that 
the, the only lesson I got from that was like, oh, Shane Black's actually a good writer. And it's like, <laughs> the, you know, the reason his scripts are that way is because he knows what he's doing. Sure. Um, and I had two film school buddies of mine, uh, two writers named Tom Speziali and Alan Cross, who were working as partners at the time, who had gotten into TV. They had started on the show called Parker Lewis Can't Lose for Fox. Um, and then, yeah, which is great. And then they w went to run Weird Science for John Lannis's company. And they just kept pestering me, come do TV, come do TV. It's like being back in film school. It's like they give us, this was the 90s. They were like, it's like they, they give us half a million dollars a week to make a student film. And I was like, and I was like, ah, no, I'm, I was like a total feature snob. And, you know, finally having no success in features, they twisted my arm and I went, you know, long story short, I, I wrote a, a freelance word science for them. They hired me on staff. I was there for two years and realized that they were 100% right. right, that working in TV was so much more satisfying. You, you know, made things that got seen, that got produced and got seen. You know, you didn't spend two years in development with a feature script that then got put into turnaround, and it was like, oh, okay, there's two years of my life done. It was like, so I was incredibly lucky to just then keep doing thing. And one job early in the career, you just took what you got. And a bunch of the early stuff I did, you know, they were technically, Weird Science was clearly an adaptation of a feature. Um, I worked, oh my God, on this, I did a couple episodes of this incredibly bad MGM show called... Um, Poltergeist the Legacy, which um, had nothing to do with the Poltergeist movies, but MGM <laughs> owned the rights to it. So they just put the name on it. So they put the name on it, and it was like it was like a sort of a weird, you know, supernatural proto X Files. It was like an ancient. I don't even remember. I wrote two of them. I don't. Know. So <laughs> well, no, I'll tell. You. Super quick story. Sure. It was so bad and such a terrible experience that I never watched the episodes I wrote. It and happens. then years later, it was on TV. I was flipping through. When you used to flip through channels, remember? Yeah. And it was on, and I was like, oh, wow, this is, I remember this. I'll, I'll, I'll watch it for a couple minutes. I started watching it. I'm thinking, God, this seems familiar. <laughs> it's like, is this one? Of, and I started thinking, maybe it's one of the sample scripts they gave me. As a, and, sure. then, and I watched about 10 minutes of it, and I was like, oh, holy shit, I wrote this. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, uh, and then I immediately turned it off. <laughs> um, couldn't look at the screen. Oh, I couldn't. My God, it was so <laughs> shameful. Um, but the uh, but then yeah, and so and so it's a very circuitous route to, the, to answer your question. There was not a point where I think I need to do something different. Or I need to reinvent myself, or I'm choosing a different path. My career wound up being just very linear because. You would work in the business, you would work with great people, you would have a good experience, they would get another show, they liked working with you, they trusted you, they would hire you, and you would just go one thing to the next, and some of them were like the, I wound up on, of all things, Desperate Housewives, because Tom Spiziali was running it, and he had been my college roommate at USC, who hired me on Weird Science, then years later was co-running Desperate Housewives with Mark Cherry and called me midway through the first season and said, it's a disaster, but I need help. And I was like, sure. Um, so you don't, a lot of them, and then you did get later to fast forward to Severance. I, at, at that point, I had been in, in my career for quite a bit longer and could be a little bit pickier about. And that script had come through my agents at WME and... Dan Erickson, who is a genius, and the reason, if you guys watch that show and like that show, it is entirely because of Dan, who is just singularly creative and brilliant, uh, and the loveliest guy in the world, and I'm so thrilled for all the success he's had with that show. Um, but it was one of the, my uh, agent sent it to me and said, this is a newbie writer who's never sold anything before. He needs someone who knows how to run a writer's room to come in and help and show him how to do it so he doesn't fail. And I read it, and it was one of the single best one-hour pilots which I'd ever read in my career. And I was like, oh, yes, I'll do this. And then Dan and I hit it off. Uh, Helen was in the room, and you know, we had a great staff. We broke the first season, and then uh, it was a Ben, ben Stiller was the exact producer and directing it, and Ben came in and kind of took it over, you know, as Ben is wont to do, decided he actually didn't need a staff of writers, so uh, mm. we moved on to some other things. But it was... It was yeah. There wasn't those. There weren't those moments of reinvention. 
you know, the things would come along that were interesting and you'd jump on it. So talking about like adaptation, are those, you know, let's say you go bowling is adapting material that already exists in the people who, for the people who own it, um, or have optioned it. Are those the bumpers in a, in a, in like a bowling alley or the obstacles sometimes in the bowling alley where you're like, this is hurting. So sometimes they're the bumpers. Yeah. Sometimes they're the right. gutters. It depends. Yeah. So, so, to maybe talk about some some moments where the material helped, and maybe somewhere, maybe some of the material hurt, or at least the attachment to the material, where somebody's like, "It has to be like this," or maybe you said it has to be like this, or there was an edict to be loyal to it, or maybe they just didn't care and they just wanted to cash grab on something that had a big name. Well, they always sort of care. I mean, they when, it, when Matt and I have actually done a lot of these things. It's funny, and like a couple that didn't get made, like Flash Gordon, uh, you know, which is essentially, you know, a classic comic strip. It, it was a comic strip, And yeah. um, the people you meet, the, the way it works is if a piece of IP is like in the studio system, it usually has a passionate producer who has a lot of power to try to like have it come to be. And the first relationship that you have as a screenwriter is... In, I think this is more, maybe more in the movie business. No, it was the same with Lost in Space. Is the relationship with the producer, and the producer often has a vested interest and may even own the rights. So, like the two people that come to mind are Kevin Burns with Lost in Space, who's amazing and colorful person. Um, may he rest in peace. And then over at Marvel, there's a guy named Avi Arad who's pretty well known. I think he was involved from Spider-Man on. And when we did Morbius, he was like the first person we talked to. So the beginning of adaptation. For, for us as screenwriters was sitting down with these passionate people who had, had a vested interest in the rights. Yeah, and, but you brought, you brought up Flash Gordon. And that was the opposite. But why talk about negative things? Well, I, <laughs> I was trying to make a... What do you guys want to hear? The negative stuff <laughs> the positive stuff. There we go. So, all right, Flash Gordon. We haven't talked about this. Why not? So, we're like, no, but the, 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 uh, Jonathan asked. <laughs> so, with Flash Gordon... Uh, we wanted to go back to the Alex Raymond comics yep. uh, because they're brilliant. The producers were, a movie called Iron Man had just come out. You remember this. Yes. A movie called Iron Man had just come out. So they were like, we have a great idea. What if he has a mechanical suit that gives him special powers on Mongo? So we had to fight that one. I brought up two producers who we really like. You can Google it. There's a, the producer. They were fine. They, they, they just didn't. They just wanted to make They money. just didn't respect yeah. the material the way we did. And, Part of our job, we felt, was to, to, to try to be, be true to what was there. The second one was, uh, how, can he have, how can he do all this fighting on Mongo? Clearly, he must uh, have special powers because he's an earthling, and the gravity is different, so that therefore he's extra s- strong. And we're like, that's John Carter of Mars. That's literally <laughs> another thing. That, and they're also making this they're like movie making right that now. Movie, yeah. We can't do that either. Um, by the way, uh, you probably have noticed that the Flash Gordon movie never came out. So, uh, oh, Another producer who was awesome was Jaime Savant for Power Rangers. Sure. That was really cool, and he was really passionate. Like, the passionate ones were positive. He's like a very how, intense dude. Yeah, he was intense, and you know what? He was passionate. And So those are examples of like the beginning of the process, and he brought up like another example of the beginning of the process. And if you do vibe with the producers, who usually have a lot of like heft with the studio, then A, you can get hired, which is the most important part, because you like made them happy, and then you can sometimes get a movie made. And by the way, not to totally diss the Flash Gordon people, but part of our job is to find the balance, because yeah. you, have, you have to reinvent things. It's true. You, you can't just, just, just do stuff. Uh, but finding that balance is sometimes uh, difficult when everybody's not on the same page. But you hear those stories where it's like, they're trying to figure out how to do a Hellboy movie, and it's like, what if he only becomes Hellboy when he's angry? And it's like, Wait, I mean, that is a story that Guillermo del Toro shares, is that yes. wow. when he was trying to get Hellboy made, they were looking at the budget, and they're like, wait, we're going to have this guy covered in this makeup the entire time, <laughs> looking like this thing the entire time. What if he just becomes Hellboy when he's angry? Well, then you have the Hulk, Hulk. right? Like, And they'll, the executives kind of like jump through hoops, either try and make things cheaper or more commercial. In the example you gave with, can't we just make this Iron Man? Well, no, you didn't. I had forgotten about Option that. Iron Man. <laughs> um, what experience did you have where it's like, okay, well, you can push this adaptation until it's no longer what you adapted, and it's broken. And those have to be heartbreaking 
and anybody can speak on this, uh, where are those moments, and you can speak vaguely about it to protect the, the, the guilty, um, but what are those moments? Why is everyone looking at me? <laughs> well, I, 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 it, it's like, I mean, this is going to sound invasive, but it feels like everything's different. I mean, yeah. it, it's, it's, it's what the material is, who the people are, and I think even horror stories like that, I think in my experience anyway, a lot of those people, it's not malicious, it's just born out of ignorance. You know, it's like they're not trying to mess it up. You know, they're not thinking, you know, it, it's to say have, you know, Hellboy turn into Hellboy when he's angry it sounds so patently stupid in this room on the face of it. But I think when that guy pitched That's that, right. they, he thought it was a good idea. You know, it wasn't, oh, yeah. he was trying. They're trying to do their job. He was trying to solve a problem. Right. You know, and part of our job is to sort of try and tease maybe some of the good ideas when, you know, out of their, you know, giant shit pile of bad yeah, ideas. And, and I'm sure, and you spoke to this, it, it helps if we are into the material. Like, you've got to, like, yeah, you like have to it. Be the right you have to like child. it. Like, there are some big brands that have come across our desk that we hadn't run at because I didn't feel a feeling, like, that are really cool. And we would just be like, I don't, and you were like, I don't think we can, like, you know, go through the, 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 the hellfire to protect it. Regardless of the money being offered. I, I was well, you don't get offered. By the way, you I mean, do not yeah. get offered money. In sure. I mean, some people do. But I was telling a story earlier today. <laughs> I was sitting in Dean Devlin's office. When he was a guest on Geekscape. And I just asked him, because I felt like he would be candid with me. I said, where did you take a left where you should have taken a right in your career? And he said Godzilla. Because he loves Godzilla. But Roland Emmerich did, didn't really connect with Godzilla. And you saw the product that you got. And he acknowledged that his role and passionately wanting to make a Godzilla movie because he loved it. It didn't connect with the director that he was attached to the producer, his partner. And the result showed that yeah. the connection wasn't there. So Roland Emmerich's an awesome, I mean, they go on to make some cool movies, some great movies. Yeah. And sometimes there's a miss because the passion isn't there. The, and, and so, yeah, it's sometimes just what Chris said. It's like, well, it feels you need some, if you're going to, and this is my personal philosophy, but if like if you're going to adapt something, you you want to adapt it. There's a reason you're doing this specific piece. Of Were you familiar with Outcast? Because I, the show's great. I wasn't until it was sent to me. But but to, and we, we can circle sure. back to that. But the that if you're going to change it so much that it's not recognizable anymore, then just do something different. Do that as an original idea. You know, if you want to do something that strays so far from what the source material is, well, then don't do that. I mean, I don't think you need, at least in my experience, to be slavish to it, because obviously Outcast is a good example. You have a 22, 24-page comic book that you're trying to turn into a one-hour episode of television. And, it's, and the great thing about working with Robert Kirkman was he, and he had already been working on The Walking Dead, he understood that they were different. He understood that they were different formats, that, that it needed to change, it needed to evolve, the world needed to build out. You know, it wasn't structurally, doing 10 episodes of, of one-hour television series wasn't structurally the same as writing a comic book. But the, the, which was one of the great things about working with Robert was he was so generous with his own material. I'm mean, like, I remember early on after reading the, well, the other thing too was, Outcast was new. Outcast had not been published yet when we started working on the series. So how many? I, there were only I don't know, like a dozen issues of it or something when we started writing it. Sure. If if that, maybe less. He was writing it, and so we very quickly lapped him. And Paul has to take ahead and started on the artwork yet. Yeah, he well, hadn't started on the artwork yet. No, no, there was there were yeah. there were so much of that issues. show has. I mean, it's visually well, it became, so close totally to what his art Well, was. and at a certain point, it became like... It, we started, because we ran out of comic book material <laughs> really fast, we were sort of on our own, and then it became very fuzzy. Stuff that came out of the writer's room that, that was put into the show then wound up working its way into future issues of the sure. comic, because it worked, it started pulling the story in that direction, and Robert liked it. 
was like, that's that's cool. We'll do that. And the story is that Glenn died in the comic because he couldn't. Wait, Glenn dies? Dude, spoiler. Guys, it's been a couple years. <laughs> uh, because Shut Robert, up. in the interviews, has said he felt like he couldn't write Glenn on the page as much well as he was doing. As it was. Doing well, and that was one of the great things about working with Robert was he was so. I remember early when we were developing Outcast, I was trying to be so respectful of Robert and him as a creator and the material and the source material. I didn't want to change it. I didn't want to turn it into something different. I didn't want, I didn't feel a, a need to sort of make it my own. We knew that we had to, yeah. you know, to, to make certain accommodations in the storytelling to turn it into the show. But I remember having some meeting somewhere at Cinemax or someplace where I kept deferring to Robert. I, you know, they kept asking questions about what we were going to do and I kept deferring to Robert's, Robert's story, to Robert's characters, we should do, and we walked out into the hallway after the meeting, and I can't do a good Robert Kirkman impression. <clears throat> you know, it, he was like the southern accent. You southern know, accent. and he was like, "Let's get something straight. The comic is mine. It's what I own creatively. It's what I write. It's what's important to me. It's what I'm passionate about. It's now a TV show. You're the showrunner. Run the show." It's like he he didn't want he wanted us to take ownership, um, and then at a certain point, I then later we took it we wound up taking it a little bit too far and, and kind of running off into the weeds a little bit, trying to sort of Cinemax kept wanting to push the sort of the door and the horror portion higher, and we we came up with a crazy first season pitch that we wound up not doing because it was crazy and bad. But then I remember Robert then pulling me aside again and saying like, okay, I I built this house. And um, you're living in the house. And you can bring your own furniture in. You can paint the walls. You can change the shutters. I don't care. It's your house now. You're living in it. Just don't burn it down. <laughs> that and all I'm, sounds really hard. This is why we only work with uh, dead authors. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that that is part of the trick of this, right? Like, I was adapting a book series uh, called Body Bags. And it was a Chris Bolden book series. It was from the 90s. And this was in, like, the late 2000s. And I didn't realize at the time, because I, I'm revering him, he's older than me, he's been doing this a long time, and I'm thinking that they, the network has bought this book series because it's a, it's IP, right? And in fact, what they wanted was my voice. And so I was deferring to him constantly and ended up not going anywhere with it because I wasn't bringing myself to it because I was afraid to. So I think it's a delicate balance to strike where you're, yeah, yeah you want to be true to the spirit of something and you want to be reflective of what drew you to it in the first place. But you also want to bring yourself to it. And where did you, where was the turning point in finding that voice, Stephanie? Because I, I said that somebody had said that the novelization for Carnival Row, they enjoy as much or if not more than the sh series Carnival Row, which is like... Well, I had a mind meld with Travis to some degree. Like, I think I really, you know, I understood. Gave you the confidence and the... Yeah, I understood what he do. wanted. And he, he was very generous with that, you know. And he's also one of these people, like, he's just an incredible writer and he's really like clear in his vision and we just really connected and I think also you know they were female characters and you know frankly the, the first showrunner on the show who, who I love dearly but you know his sort of point of view of the show wasn't the same as Travis's so that impacted it so we were really like I was getting to do something that was canon and there was the writer's room that was on the second season was involved in the breaking of the story and so I was just giving it the voice so it came really naturally but I mean like that's what the journeyman tv writer does right as you find some you, you become able to adapt to other people's voices and when it's comic books right mm -hmm. yeah and we're going to talk more about we have to. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. I'm ready. You, Bill, I've been waiting. And, 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 and I've Burke, been in therapy. And Burke, I have told, I have, I have said, and I mean this sincerely, I think you were the best person to go into Morbius because your love of that 70s Marvel. Guys, last year after the Lost in Space panel, Burke bursts into the Geekscape booth and he goes, check it out. And he's got all these 70s. Eric, like Jerry Conway comics and all this stuff from Man that. Man, Wolf, Frankenstein. He has, he's like, look how much I got this Werewolf by Night comic for. And it's in great condition. And he loves the Werewolf by Night. He loves the Swan. He loves the uh, Man Thing. He loves all that 70s. Anything with Man in it, evidently. Well, you saw him in <laughs> Werewolf by Night, the movie. You saw Man Thing finally on screen. Uh, you love those characters and you love Morbius and you got Morbius and you've told me what your, your approach to Morbius early on was. When you see it, Kind of float away from you. 
How's that feeling? Because you well, really knew that character. You're putting words in my mouth. So, I am. I'm sorry. With Morbius, so here's like the cool thing about one of these jobs. I'll just speak about it in general. When you're when you get these jobs, we talked about meeting the producer, and then you like the producer's passionate about a character, and Avi was very passionate about Morbius. I mean, oh my god, I think it was his, he said it was his favorite character. Imagine him like I mean, he had made the Blade movies. So he was like. Played as one side of being a vampire, the animal side. Morbius is the sexy side. He had a lot of opinions. Um, and so when we wrote, we kind of came up with a story, which at the time, when, the way you get a movie made is that you convince the studio that the story, not necessarily like the script, you have to deliver on the script, that the story could be a movie. So that's sort of like you call that sort of the take. And if the pitch is passionate, you can move forward. And we had sort of an idea of sort of an R-rated, intense uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which is very much the comic. And so as you go through the journey of, of writing this, it, the, has anybody ever read Adventures in the Screen Trade? Which, by the way, yes. he's the one who got me to read it. But he talks about uh, uh, filmmaking is a relay race. And the job of the screenwriter is the first leg. And you write a script, and if the script comes in, with usually, if you're lucky, it's just you who worked on it. Not always, but if you, you hope so. And then that script comes in in the studio, which is a very powerful bank. So a bunch of bankers who like also like movies look at it and they say, we think we can make money on this. And they use your script to get a director. And you have to accept as a writer that you're, the moment where you're the creator of the movie is, is, is now passed on to other people. You may still technically work on the movie, because that's really cool for a whole bunch of other reasons called money. And you want to be a part of that. And you also want like feel passionate about it, and that doesn't go in a way. So you watch the movie kind of become other things to other people. And in the case of that movie, you know, it is what it is. And in, sometimes in principle, in principle, a movie can get better, actually, if the, if the script evolves with a brilliant director, you know. So that's kind of the thing to understand about Morbius and like what the art of adaptation is for a comic book thing like that is... He and I did this cool, you know, kind of grungy. I mean, it's always going to be an exploitation-esque film. Because if you've, anybody has read that stuff, it's like coming right out of the exploitation vampire era from like 1974. It's great, grisly stuff. And then, you know, the movie evolves. And, and, you know, we were lucky to actually work on that movie on and off all the way through. And I'm proud that it exists, you know. And uh, maybe, I don't know what else to say. What do you got? What do I got? What do you got? You were there. I was there. I was well, but there. But it's also it's worth pointing out. I think that fe the feature world because you have experience in both features and TV. Mm -hmm. Oh, TV is amazing. TV is different. It, yeah. It's, oh yeah, you're on set. You're the telling opposite. these guys what to shoot. It's yeah, the opposite. It's like, yeah. yeah. No, writers are in charge of television. Right. It's and writers are not in charge of movies at all. Um. No, I mean, with Morbius, it was interesting because there were so many fights we had to have. Just, I mean, if you've read the comic, you know, he, he turns into a vampire on a boat when the experiment goes wrong. Just trying to keep it, the scene on the boat was a fight. At one point, the studio was like, we don't like boats. Yeah, they just were like, 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 what if it's a train? We hate, we hate boats. Could it be a train? <laughs> or you could, it was like, so, you know... It could have been worse. Because so I'm going to say. By the way, in the movie, it's on a boat. So just like it. Deal with it. You got your boat. But because of the expense of shooting on water... You no, they still like boats. They also don't like bridges, by the way. Bridges <laughs> and boats. We had a scene on a bridge, and it was like, you got to lose the bridge. Yeah, if somebody gets a bee in their bonnet about something, you never know what it's going to be. I don't, it's, it's, the whim of, it's the whim of the studio. Yeah. It, I mean, I thought it was the water and the cost of production of shooting on water, but now <laughs> no. we got... No, I mean, no, maybe... That's just, that's just some... Like, it's a chintzy mat shot in the wide shot. It's, like, mostly just, like, oh, it's not... Here's the thing. There's a sense in the... Again, I'm going to talk about the movie suit. They want things to be cool. And, like, you hear a lot that... We've heard that our whole career. Like, a, an executive wants things to feel cool. And evidently, boats were not cool. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say, Avi fought for the boat. He did. As a Avi's comics fan. fucking awesome. He, he had her back. But, um, I mean, just in, in terms of adapting the comics, you know, obviously, you know, Spider-Man 101 is the first appearance of Morbius, character, you know, created by Roy Thomas and Gil Kane. Roy Thomas. 
And um, but we loved the uh, the '70s books, the, the the vampire tales. They were they were R-rated and grungy, and we thought the studio was agreeing with yeah, that. Yeah, they wanted that. Initially. We were like, there's going to be you know drug references because in, in those comics, he's very much like living out on the streets, and it's like we're going to cast like, a grungy rock star. Wait, that didn't work. Oh, never oh, they did cast a rock star. They they did. Is he? Yeah, thirty yes! six Mars, dog. We. Anyway. I guess so. <laughs> um, but but you know the studio I don't have his you know was I was on board with that. I mean in, in the movie there there's this this um this lab run by counterfeiters, which makes no sense because it was supposed to be a drug lab. Everyone said that was going to be okay, even when we were making a PG thirteen, and all of a sudden they're like this is a Spider Man movie, kind of. So you can't have any drug references. So then it became like a counterfeit lab, and we're like, well, it's a lab, but I mean, is that a thing? Do people is is cash a thing still? I know, like, do people. So, you know, we we were trying to make this this seventies thing, and and just for for various reasons, it sort of drifted away from that. And you do what you can to sort of hold on, but, um, but you yeah, you can see that incremental change, right? You're like it's enough. No, it, it's counterfeit. Yeah, you can see like, that progression. By, by the way, just to give a plug for the, the Writers Guild, the Writers Guild Library has every script ever written. It's like the Library of Alexandria, but only for like like movies and TV. And our, our old script is there on a hard copy if anyone wants to see it. Uh, I don't know if it's open now because of the strike, but um, uh, for any writers in the audience, uh, every script that exists, you can't, and they're hard copies. It's like you know, reading you know, the Gutenberg Bible. Of, you know. <laughs> so is it not necessarily the shooting script? It's like the last no. one that you turned in? We decided which There's, there's one several got versions. Oh, that's every, awesome. They, they let us decide. And I we love just that. said, well, here's one this from... Like early on, before. and you don't have to be a member of the WGA to access the WGA library. Like it's right there by yeah. the Farmers Market in LA. You can go in and you can check out scripts. Yeah, yeah you have to read them there, but it, it's a tremendous resource. I mean, I, I've been there reading stuff. It's it's uh, it, it's great. So any any Morbius fans who want to know uh, <laughs> what 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 possibly could have been, what might have been. Yes. But meanwhile, Lost in Space, you had the same kind of necessary changes in updating material from decades ago, and what was kind of your guidepost for that? I mean, ultimately, I think we're talking about tone. Well, we're talking... that's like such a long conversation. We should let sure. them jump in. Because I don't want to like segue to that. Right. that. By the way, I'll say one sentence. That's like where everything goes right. Where you keep working with people who are supportive and get the material and like make it better and better and better. So that's like, that's been a really, that's a really neat thing that Matt and I have in our life as screenwriters is just like, oh yeah, I remember in Lost in Space when it all went right. And Stephanie... Does, does a novelization allow you to work a little closer to the tone in the stories? And, and does it, is it easier or, or harder in some respects to adapt something with the novelizations? That's a good um, question. First yeah. of all, novels must be really hard to write. You know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I did, I also did, I turned a script of mine into a novel last year as well. And I, what I found difficult... Another reinvention. Yeah, well, that was specifically because my agents were like, let's turn it into IP because it's, yeah. you know, sold a million times and now we actually want to get it made. Um, and what I found was different is that you can, when you're writing a novel, I mean, I suppose this is true of the screenplay too, but less so. Really, you have such, there's so many tones you could choose from. What do you want it to sound like? What It's all about the voice, right? And I feel like maybe that's slightly less true with screenwriting because, you know, you're setting up the visual as opposed to just getting into someone's ear. So that's what I found to be different about it. Mm -hmm. um, I think what's interesting about comics, without speaking specifically about anything because of all the WGA stuff, is that in the case of the thing that I've been working on, you have to really be aware of also the visual style, which is different because I've also done a lot of novel to script, a lot of novel to pilot. I've done several novel to feature um, my primary living has been an adaptation book to screen. And doing it with a comic, is it's there's a whole different piece of it because people are in love with the artwork and that's what they feel passionate about. And so finding a way to be true to that in your writing is, is a very different and exciting thing to me that I think is a really cool place to come from. You take the tone of the book, of the novel, mm -hmm. and you invent... A bit of the visual language. Yeah, but with comics, it's different because the visual language it's is there. there for you, right? So it's like, how do you stay true to that? And then within a budget, that which is a different story sure. altogether, right? But I'm almost shocked. I mean, Chris, like, uh, 
when I watched Outcast, I honestly just hearing you talk about how early the book was when that show started writing, I am shocked because well, no, because Paul's artwork is so distinct. Well, I remember now that it's been it's funny because you get this is going to sound weird. People are so invested in certain projects and so passionate about certain projects, and they remember them. And, and not that I don't care and I'm not invested in them and they're not important and an important part of my life and my career. But one, there's one job and then the next job and then yeah, the sure. next job and then the next job. And a lot of it, you're so in the weeds on it and it's so much about producing the show. Like when you asked me a couple minutes ago, like, like how many, you know, like have the artwork been done when we started writing the show? And I honestly, like, like, like I couldn't remember because it was so many jobs ago. But now just thinking about it, it did exist. We did have Paul's, um, Work because I remember when we were shooting pilot, when um, Adam Wingard, we hired Adam Wingard to direct it, uh, really used those uh, frames, Paul's panels, as templates for how it should be shot and lit. And David Tattersall shot it. He's a brilliant DP, and it was about it, it, trying to make it painterly, sure. if you will. Mm -hmm. I mean, and it was it was about it wasn't tons of camera moves. It was. It was creating tableaus and locking yeah. the camera off and painting a picture within that and making it look at, I remember specifically Adam Wingard really embracing that of like wanting it to look on the screen in that widescreen format to look like those, those beautiful images that Paul had done. And I, I feel like that was part of the package in getting it even released at Skybound Image because I mean, part of Robert being a comic creator is the partnership with the artist, mm -hmm. whether it's Charlie Adler or whoever it is, like, they're part of the storytelling of that book. Mm -hmm. And they, it, it falls into The Walking Dead. And we saw it for sure fall into Outcast. Um, we have a, about 10, a little over 10 minutes left, 10 minutes. I wanted you guys to ask questions of them. Again, if there's a future project or something, they may have to sidestep that answer. But um, let's have some hands up. Yes, sir. Uh, the question is, for the microphone, is that uh, what was the process of adaptation in some of these specific things that already exist? Did you watch every, did you read every Morbius comic, watch every Lost in Space? I mean, pretty much. I mean... <laughs> You'd already read them, that's, Burke. That's, by the way, that's the easy part, where you just kind of like get to read shit or watch stuff. Like that, like, because you then know you're a fan, and you sort of let it, you know, you let it seep in. Yeah, we watched a lot, and that, we, we call it research, Yeah. You know? But it's also like osmosis. When I, it's osmosis. When I was hired to write the comic version of Miami Vice, I, they were all on Netflix. I binged the first two seasons, and because I didn't really know. I mean, Miami Vice is a little older than me, and I, not much older than me, but <laughs> I remember getting the yes because I lied my way into the gig, and then go, I was like, oh yeah, I love Miami Vice. Oh my God, I love that. Like, I, I, I got it because I played a lot of GTA Vice City. <laughs> it was like, I know all about it. <laughs> and I was like, it's oh, like, I, I know totally about Miami Vice. This. I played the and game. And I immediately went, I got the job at WonderCon. We had a booth at WonderCon. I had access to some of the other publishers that were there before the door opened, which is why I like having a booth. You get to walk the floor and meet people as they're setting up their booth and be like, what are you working on now? Oh, we just optioned this, this Universal stuff for a comic. And they were friends, and I said, let me write, what do you got? And they said, well, we got people on this, we got people on Air Force, we got people on Knight Rider. I was like, and we, we don't, we're still looking for Miami Vice. I was like, let me get have it. They were like, you a fan? I was like, absolutely. I went home from WonderCon after setting up my booth, and I watched like five straight episodes of Miami <laughs> Vice. And somewhere over that weekend, it shook out the story, but it is osmosis. The voice, the tone, yeah. the visual language, it became osmosis for educating. Well, you have to, and I think you have to want to. Because if you're going to, unless it literally is a job for hire, that you're only doing it because you're excited about it. And you like to hear you guys talking about Morbius and your love of those 70s comics. It's like, you may already be immersed in it. You've already, like, you know, embraced it. And, and uh, one of the other Kirkman projects I had, a, I wrote one episode of uh, Invincible, which some of the producers are sitting here in the front it's row. It's incredible. I cannot wait for... Um, oh, well, yeah, yeah, which cool. is fantastic. But that was not a... I came into that project because I had worked with Robert. Uh, I was friends with Robert. Robert was just getting a bunch of writers together to write episodes of the first season. But I will confess, I did not... It was not a comic I had read. I didn't know. So when I came in, he gave us the giant you know, compendiums, and I read all of them because 
if you're going to do it, you want to be faithful to it. The weirdest, like, osmosis was just sitting down and, like, watching 20 or 30 episodes of Power Rangers from the beginning. Oh, I bet. <laughs> I that, bet. That, that I didn't do. <laughs> I did. There's osmosis there. There's a, there's a tone. That's well, good. and if you want to break the mold, you have to know what it is, too. You have to know what they've done in order to, you know, to With Invincible, there were some story beats that Robert didn't have for many issues, and y'all put very quickly into the show that it happened so quickly in the show that my, I gasped. I was like, you guys are already doing this. Incredible. But that is the adaptation from comic where the pacing is much different to television, where it may have to be a bit more aggressive to get them to watch episode number two. You can ask those people. Yeah. Uh, let's get you on the microphone. Uh, let's get another question. And uh, maybe if I can monitor how much time I have left. But go ahead, sir. Well, what is the key to getting the meetings? And then what's the key to getting the job? And you had said passion earlier and really showing the passion and the knowledge of it. And, um, but what, what's well, the advice? I think, I think my guy, yeah. the young filmmaker or screenwriter, maybe his advice is how do I navigate into these situations? Well, there's sort of like a, it's a, we should do it next year. There's the how do you break into the industry uh, panel, which I really love talking about. Because like I mentioned, I was bartending. So there's like, so say there's 10 steps to being the author of Morbius. It's, a, it's really worth it. Um, the first eight is a whole other conversation of breaking into the industry. And that's like another panel that we'll do, which is fun. And everybody's stories, we heard a little bit tonight. Those are great stories because each one's different and, and, it's, and it's special. But then the last two steps are passion. So what happens to, to get the job is, is that usually your agent sort of says, have you heard of, and then they say the thing, have you heard of Power Rangers? They don't mean have you heard of it, but would you be able to do it? And that Matt and I look at each other in the room and we get off the phone and one of us usually goes, there's no fucking way. <laughs> and the other one goes, no, I love that. That's me. <laughs> and I'm like, no, 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 I'm so into it. So like, you kind of like start to get a but feeling. Do you remember our Morbius meeting? Because they were like, I mean, look, Sony's doing all their characters. Morbius was not at the top of the list. <laughs> they were like, look, do you guys know who this is? Because we're not going to give you any materials at all. Like, unless you guys are really into Morbius. And it turns out we were both, like, super psyched to be working on a Morbius movie. And we already had all the comics, and we, we sold them through our, our passion. And, not, in fact, I brought, I brought a comic book in. Remember? I actually brought in uh, an old Spider-Man comic that had Morbius on the cover. It was a little bit guilty in the lowly, I won't say sure. at that point, but it was like, we love this. this well, it's Giant Size Superheroes number one, so it's, it it's so Spider-Man it like this. Anybody who knows it, Spider-Man's like this. Morbius is, it's a uh, Gil Kane cover. Morbius is attacking from this side, and Man-Wolf is attacking him from this side. And as a kid, it was like you could buy one comic where a werewolf attacks Spider-Man and a vampire at the same time. And I mean, I don't know. What's but, better than that? But, but by the way, I will say, uh, I said it was my personal collection, I had bought it on eBay the week before. Yeah. <laughs> so this gets to getting hired. You are allowed to lie a little if you didn't, if it's not really a lie. Yeah. It's your collection now. Exactly. You were adding to your collection. I don't have it in 9.8. I mean, honestly, and I know this may be the worst thing it's for you passion. to hear as a young, aspiring screenwriter, but you got to see how the ball bounces, you know, and you got to just keep going. I think ultimately, right? Well, getting in the room, getting the pitch is the tricky part. And that yeah, is that's a whole, like a whole thing. That's a whole separate yeah. panel. But, but these I, are people you went to school with. But I, you know? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was a fraternity. Going to USC was a real fraternity of people, you know, rising up through the business together and helping and supporting each other. But it's I 100% agree with the people ask, well, how do you sell a pitch? It's like, yes, you have to have a good take. What's your take on this material? But I absolutely believe it's enthusiasm. It's passion, oh, it it's makes so much difference. Personal like, connection yeah. to yeah. the material. Hands you can even. I'm, I'm sorry. No, that's not. I was just noting, like, yeah, personal connection. I was literally like, I was just rah rahing what she said. If you're like into it and you like, like your eyes glow, or if you can manufacture the look yeah. of the glowing eyes. <laughs> well, it's funny because I'll say that anytime that I've manufactured it, I haven't gotten the job. But when it's been sincere, I almost always have. Like when I've walked in the room and been like, you're not going to find somebody else who can adapt this book the way that I can, I get the job. So, but I have to mean it. <laughs> uh, this is the part where we're almost out of time and I start asking you, what are you working on next? But I don't think Guild Rules let me do that. Nope. So nope. ultimately what I'll ask is if people want to know what you work on next when you can talk about it, what are some of the places where people can follow your work or find you maybe online? 
I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a ghost <laughs> online. I, I'm on not a, any social media. So I, I guess listen to uh, Geekscape. How about that? Yeah, you know. Jonathan wants to talk about Geekscape. <laughs> just, just bring us for interviews and we'll like talk about what we're doing. When we I know what projects you ha- guys have coming on and, uh, coming up, and I really hope that y'all are back to the playing field very soon. And we can oh. talk about these releases. I'm so excited. So about, do we. <laughs> I am yeah, so yeah. excited about the, these things that you guys have going on. And I guess the Geekscape podcast is the best place because I will invite every single one of you on to talk about it more. And as we talk about it, you know, we're also like going to be joking about all the random stuff that yeah. we also experience <laughs> in the pursuit of all these things. But I do want to thank the audience as well for being uh, so awesome and patient in like being a part of it. Let's give a hand to our panelists and showing out to you. Yeah. Chris, Stephanie, Matt Burke, thank you. The art of adap- the adaptation. And thank you, San Diego Comic Con 2023. How great was that panel? It was like you were there with us, wasn't it? Well, I really wish you were because we had a blast. And that wraps up our San Diego Comic Con 2023 coverage for us here at Geekscape. If you enjoyed this or any of the live episodes, just share it with your friends. Tell them this is like being at Comic-Con, a small window through Geekscape of being in the insanity yourself. Of course, also share a little review with us on whatever podcatcher you're using. I appreciate the five stars. It really helps our visibility. And when I'm trying to get people as guests on Geekscape, it really helps convince them like that we're not just like some weird Bush League podcast. We've been doing this for a long time. We've had a lot of amazing guests, and I would love to have more. So if you could, do your part, share the podcast, leave a review, and we'll see you next time. You're listening to the Geekscape Network.